welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and I'm so delighted to be here. I'm so delighted to be speaking. Um, I know a lot of exes who, who would have been killed for, for to be around me the last couple of weeks when I couldn't speak. And you'll hear in my interview with Henry Rollins just how sick I was, but it, whatever, you gotta work. Um, and I didn't wanna miss the opportunity to interview him. It was such a joy. Uh, Henry is a writer, a journalist. He has a column every week in LA Weekly, which has actually been compiled into a, a book called Before the Chop. You may have known him when he was in Black Flag. He started in State of the Alert, which is a, a hardcore punk band, um, but Black Flag was the way he really got his, his biggest start. And then since then, he's been on tons of television shows from Sons of Anarchy to his own The Henry Rollins Show. He also hosts a radio show on KPCC every Saturday and tours all over the world doing spoken word slash comedy slash social activism. Lots of slashes, lots of slashes, lots of slashes. The man never stops working. He wanted to do the live show at Largo, which means that we will get to do the live show at Largo when Henry has availability. For those of you who are lucky enough not to ever have to come to L.A., uh, you will miss that show here. However, you will not miss this phenomenal podcast. My apologies for sounding like Kermit the Frog. Well, sounding like him, but not fully. I mean, that's the problem is if I was a full-on Muppet, it wouldn't be an issue and I wouldn't have to apologize. But please enjoy my interview with the tireless man as a machine, Mr. Henry Rollins. I never wanted for anything. You didn't want for anything? No, no, no. I was raised incredibly middle class. There was always clean clothes, SpaghettiOs. I never missed a meal. Uh, there was no starvation. Uh, like any American family, there was, you know, mass dysfunction. But um, no, no, I was never... Okay. No, both my parents worked. Father was a PhD, uh, incredibly smart man, very mean, but very smart. He lived apart. They got yeah. divorced. Mother was working for the government, hardworking, not a lot of pay, but incredibly smart woman who worked her her butt off and so I never wanted for anything for anything we weren't rich we were just like sturdy middle class the, the, the American dream small apartments but there's never like sorry son you're gonna have to we're, we're cooking this meal with a sterno cooking fuel there's not even close right. and so I never wanted for any of that however both of those parents instilled in me a really hardcore work ethic because they were the proof in the pudding. They were always out working. Like I see my father on the weekends and the guy's dragging his work home. He's wearing these ultra starched Brooks Brothers suits that would stand up on their own. He would tell me- Did he sleep in them? Uh, no, he would, but he would go down to the office. He worked at a, uh, an economics firm for his entire career. He taught for a while, then he went into this one, this one associates, you know, and did his whole life in that building. And, and retired. I don't know much about the guy, but he was a company man and probably rose up. I have no idea, but that was his job. He was like an expert witness in utility rates cases. He, he was an economics guy, but with utilities, regulation. To the right of him is like Sean Hannity and a wall. You know, really hardcore conservative, loved Reagan. And that's fine. I mean, do what you want. But beyond that, he like hated the left, hated anything that was liberal. So there's two things at play there. You know, he's to the right of everything and he's like anti-left, like vocally, 
you know, he's a real piece of work. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't even know where he lives. I don't pay attention. Anyway, guy worked his ass off. But the fact that you were able to take that away, I think, is exceptional. Like, my dad, I never saw him go to bed before 2 in the morning. I also grew up in D.C. Parents worked in the government. My dad worked for Carter, so your father would have hated mine. Um, but most people don't necessarily walk away. They walk away a little, I don't want to say entitled, but... Um, the work ethic that you have taken from them is, is very unique. Well, I didn't get it all from them. I got a lot of it, though. And, you know, on the week, uh, on, during the week, I'd you know, be with my mom in some small apartment. My mom's apartments basically look like the environment you're sitting in here now. Things Which on the wall. a very big, very beautiful place that has all, all, all of these cultural references from... Well, with your interests and things you've done. Yeah, it's stuff on the and walls. Books everywhere, which in Los Angeles is nearly impossible yeah, so, to find. So my mom's place was like stereo, you know, small apartments, like two little two and one bedroom apartments. Stereo, books, art, no TV. And that's how I was raised with my mom. There's no TV in this building either. I just, I don't want to have it because I know I will watch it. Yeah. And so I don't, you know. Give but me- then, okay, well, all right. I wanted to talk first about the work ethic, but we can talk about this. You are an actor on television. You're on all these television shows. Yeah. Is not having TV a problem when you want to, like, prep for roles? No. No, you want to get to what the character's about. I don't need to watch TV to get there. And so if you need to learn about the show, how do you do that? Netflix oh, oh say, say like when I was on Sons of Anarchy. Yeah. I was in season two. I bought the DVD box set of season one. And I'll watch it to, to get up to speed. Okay. So before an audition, that's what you'll do is you'll just prep that way. No. They, they gave me the job. And they said, okay, we'll see you in June or whenever it was. But you got the job without auditioning? Uh-huh. Yeah, that was just a lucky break where Kurt Sutter knew what he wanted. And basically, he, he said, let's talk about the part. I said, okay, we talked about that. And I said, because he never really told me why I came to the meeting. So I said, so why are we talking about this? Well, I want to know if you're interested in this part. I'm like, Yeah. Sure, when do I audition? He goes, well, I don't need an audition. I know you can do it. I just want to know your interest. I said, I said I'm, my tail's wagging. He said, then I'll see you on the set. I'm like, that's it? He goes, yeah, unless you have a question. I'm like, no, I didn't want to jinx it. So I said, I'm leaving your office. He said, I'll see you at the barbecue at my house in a few weeks. And there's a, you know, the cast barbecue. He's an insanely nice man, as is his wife. So I, like, just because I want to give people some context. So like you have around 19 albums and... 17 spoken word albums and 10 documentaries and you have a radio show and you tour all over 20 the 20-some books. 20-something books. Um, yeah. None of this is to be admired or bragged about. No, 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 but I want to put a context because I feel like the reason that you get asked to do so many things is because you are out there doing these other things. Yeah. And that's why you don't have to go through the usual rigmarole. Oh, is I correct? do. I do some rigmarole. What is, what is your rigmarole? I get in those lines. I audition. And, and most of the time I don't get... I get more than I used to, but still the majority, like most, a lot of people in this town, you, you stand on those lines and you, you go sign in yes, for the audition. Yes. You see there's eight other people with, because it says like your name, time, agent, and character you're going for. So you can see how many of you they're throwing at the wall. And the other day I auditioned for a thing, a pilot I just did, um, which I'm, I can't say a thing about it. You, these days, these things you sign. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's amazing. It's insane. They want your proof of citizenship. <laughs> like I bring my passport to you. It's a little offensive. Anyway, um, I can't tell you about it, but it was a pilot. I auditioned for one part, which I didn't get because you see the guy who did get, he's 
good 20 years younger than me. But they, they said, we like you. Just we, we thought you were cool and funny and crazy or whatever. So here's another part of this age appropriate. We're just going to give you because we've already seen you audition this. So that we feel you. Okay. And you can have this one. I said, I'll take it. Anyway, let's get back to the initial question. The initial uh, question was well, about well, your work ethic. I, the work ethic, I, I was inspired by a lot of that from my parents because I just see these two overachievers. But one of the main things that got me a minimum wage job, and I like a lot of people, I've been employed since about fourth or fifth grade. And you know, you'll, in, in this country, you'll hear that that's not unique. Uh, truly, you'll ask people, I have had a job, and they have, throwing newspapers or whatever it right. was. Okay, one, the main, perhaps the main reason I sought minimum wage jobs, and I would have more than one. I'd have like two nights at the movie theater, yes. Saturday at the pet shop, Sunday at the surf shop. And you know, and I, would, I would just like do part-time here, here, and here all the time, um, all through high school, different venues. Anyway. I'm going to brag, but I worked at an aerobic studio selling women thong. But it's a job. <laughs> You, you, I'm going to brag about it. It was well, pretty amazing. Well, you, 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 you <laughs> I loved it. it. Oh, I loved it. Okay. Well, I loved making money. I was proud of it. Well, exactly. And so I was going to an all boys prep school. I mean, you're, you're local. I was in Potomac, Maryland at the Bullis Naval Prep School for boys. Oh it's, co- it's co-ed now. It was all boys and I went there. So I'm going to school with guys. Like put it this way. When George W. Bush became president, I would watch, I was watching him. I said, I know this guy. I went to high school with this guy. I know his type, you know, never, never pays. In full, break stuff, someone else cleans it up. Don't worry, it's okay. The maid will get it. I tipped the golf cart at the country club. It's okay, it's okay. We know that we know the guy. It's it's fine. You know, they've already replaced it. I went to school with guys like that. 16th birthday, Trans Am with the Kansas eight-track tape slammed in it on on 16 years old, day one. First credit cards I've ever saw with a young I didn't even know how a credit card worked. My mom could barely get that green American Express card, you know, and they barely didn't give them out like they give them out now. Now we'll give them to a corpse. Well, now, right. Well, now we'll give them to a, a ham sandwich. In those days, you know, my mom had the one, and I didn't know how it worked. We used it when go on vacation, like, you know, at the hotel. And my classmates in the summer, what are you going to do this summer? You know, I don't know, float around, because, like, the dad would just give them money. And so they had a new skateboard, a new bike, new clothes, and they just never, they always had a wad of money. Yeah. And so I didn't respect that. And also, I, I'm not going to run down my parents, but I did not get along with them that well. They scared the hell out of me. And I was- Your mom as well. Yeah, just because of some, just some of her relationships. And so- To you or, or with other people or- With other people- uh, and, you know, some of her boyfriends didn't like the kid around. So, like, well, how do you solve that? You can't move your mother out of her apartment. So you move yourself out of it and make money. So I would work. And where where's the kid this evening? Uh, you know, he's not on the corner doing drugs. He's he's right in that retail outlet for, you know, two seventy five an hour doing some boring, monotonous task. So I, in high school, I'm buying my own skateboards, bought my own bike. You know, I'm much older than you, but like, where did you, where did you buy your skateboards? My brother used to skate. I used to at, on Cordell Avenue at the Bethesda Surf Shop. I used to work there. I used to have the keys to that place on my keychain. I was the head manager by by '79. I was on the team. I skated for them. Anyway, I worked there and wonderful people. Any anyway, 
I bought my own stuff. Like, you know, painter's pants were hip for a while. Yeah. Buy my own pair to try and fit in. Buy my own Adidas. And I really enjoyed that autonomy. The autonomy of being like a 15-year-old who knew how to work a cash register, like real fast. And I can do inventory. I can stock. And by the time I'm 16 or 17, I have the keys for more than one retail outlet on my keychain right next to my little apartment key. Like, basically, I have responsibility. Adults, trust me. I am working in the adult world. I'm handling their money. I'm making interesting decisions. Like, okay, we need 100 pounds of gravel for the fish department at the pet shop, uh, which is right next to the Whole Foods on Wisconsin Avenue, right below Calvert. It's now a tennis shop. But that was Friendly BC's Pet Store, my local pet shop. And I got a job there. And I became, you know, I helped run it, had a key. somehow you translate, so... But I guess the analogy I was trying to say is that in the generation, and by generation, I don't mean an age, I mean the era. Now, people enjoy reaping the benefits, the Adidas, whatever's hip in terms of the pants. Yeah, I, I dug the autonomy. That's the, the, the difference. The, the, the money is just what you can, you know, here, here's proof that I'm, I pull my own weight in the world. Here's my own sting, swing Stingray bike. Right. I earned this. It's the earning it. Yes, it's not the bike. It's the I earned this. It's the... I'm finding my feet in the world because I did not get that kind of inspiration from my parents. I did not feel unconditional love. I did. I was not able to take my guard down around them. They made me nervous. I'm not trying to put them down, you know, because it's, it's all on me. Honest. I was scared of them. I was terrified of my father. He yelled. He'd he'd use racial terms. He hated women. He hated gay people. And he tried to inculcate me into this. And thankfully, my mom is you know rocking the Dylan records and all of that. And I come home and say. Um, Dad said, you know, like, what did your father teach you this weekend? Well, never trust a chink. Henry, like, I don't know. It's what he said. I, 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 you know, this is what he's laying on me. I'm like nine. And, and so I, these people scared me. I like being out of the house and earning my money and kind of getting ready for the adult world. Because it was one of the first revelations I had as a very young person, a very young, stupid person, bad in school, no common sense, no balance, very uncoordinated. Everything, things are difficult. Anyway, um, I, I started prepping myself for the cold, rough adult world. So I figured I'm going out into it because there's no way I'm going to college. I could just see I'm like, I can barely get through but school. But that was also very shrewd and interesting because I, like, I'm coming from stand-up where people like George Carlin don't go to college, but they're the smartest people in the world. No, but a lot and of smart people don't need school. Yeah. Like some of the smartest people I've met, like a guy like George Carlin, he was wicked. And he didn't go to school. Like, and, and intellectually smart. I mean, so intellectually. Well, yeah, but there's some people, school's good for them in that they can find an interest and pursue it. But they already have the smarts. Right. They just apply it. And, and, and I'm not putting down education. I think school is great, great, great. But some people, they're just sharp anyway. And they find their way. And, and find their way. I think it's the finding their way part because, yeah. like, you were going to read the books on your own. You you travel all over and you're like, I don't know anything about the Middle East, so let me go there and find out about it. Yeah, I like, like, I like that idea. You know, I, I this thing I've been saying for many years, knowledge without mileage equals bullshit. And that, you, you know, I'm, all, I'm on a lot of college campuses. I meet a lot of professors. And they're fantastic. But sometimes their body is soft compared to their knowledge. They'll tell you about the brutality of Sharia law. Like, okay, you ever walk through that? Well, no, but I've read these books and I've actually written a treatise on them. Like, hey, do you have a passport? Like, do you go into this? Do you I mean, put your feet in it at all? Well, I was in Turkey for a week 20 years ago. 
And what else? Well, now I'm just sitting here on campus. And, and that's cool. I don't tell people what to do. That doesn't work for me. And so when I was young, employment allowed me to get out of the house, get into the rough world of, of, of real money and getting, you know. I'm not, and the validation. Yeah, and I'm, not, I'm not some tough guy, but I realized a guy like me is going to have to be tough. And there's a guy who graduated from high school a couple of years before me. I always had those dopey yearbooks. And underneath his photo of him, you know, sailing on his father's boat, it said, if you're not going to be smart, you're going to have to be pretty tough. And probably some cool president said that or something. And I went, I'm holding on to that. And that was like 1975. I saw that, something like that. I was like, that's going to be me. And that, that's been it. And you often talk about that, that you'll say you have tenacity versus talent. And yes. I wanted to ask like what you meant by that, because well, what, what does tenacity mean specifically? Tenacity means you know what the job is. You know you don't have the chops for it, but you know you can maybe fake them out and somehow pass for normal. If they're getting up at six and you get up at four, if they're doing 10 push-ups and you do 30, if they glance at the script and you memorize the whole freaking thing, if you just umfit and overachieve where it leaves lines in your face, maybe you can stand a chance in this world that you, in this arena or this altitude where you really, it's like, I'm going to be in the NBA. You're 5'3". Yeah, but man, I am going to practice so hard. I'll at least be on the second squad. And that's been the story of my life because I'm not good at anything except procrastination, sleeping late, avoiding people, and sitting alone and listening to music and not getting a lot done. That's what I'm, I excel at. I excel, at, I excel at overeating. Um, but you're so fit. You say all of these things. I, I know, but I'm saying I'm good at all that stuff. The rest is a heavy lift. I am not an outgoing person. Uh, I, I, during Christmas holiday, you know, the office shuts down. And if I am not consumed with exhaustion, I'll go winter out for a month. Like I'll go to Vietnam or Laos or Cambodia and just go live in a hotel and drag my next editing project and do it. Like I've, you know, edited my next book in Islamabad. I just went there to do it. You know, see something new, walk around, get some photos, get a little inspiration, but do your work. Do you get lonely? No, that's never, never a problem. Uh, like it's weird. It's never, ever, 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 ever a problem. Is it more hard to be around people? Yes. And so that could be a chip I'm missing or something, but... Um, I have learned that, you know, cause I'm not a writer, but I've written a bunch of books. Why I own the publishing company. I sleep, Why did you just say you're not a writer when you published all these books? I sleep with the owner every night. I own the means of production. I figured out, I got a few things right in my life. In but my, you're typing. I very inefficiently. I, I bought a, a little bullshit. keyboard thing years ago. I'm sorry. Ago. That is such bullshit. You write, you're a writer. You um, get paid for it. Yeah. But name faceless singers. They get paid to sing. You, you, you want to play that record? No, you don't. Okay. You know what, you know what I'm saying? No, I don't buy it. You're a writer. Uh, I read your Albert, work. Albert Camus a writer. Um, Thomas Wolfe. F. Scott Fitzgerald. That's writing. Uh, Ryzard Kapaczynski, the great Polish journalist. That's writing. Uh, me, it's like a C, D, or F, grade Henry Miller is what I'm trotting out there. Uh, you know, basically, but here's what I saw. that's true for 99% of us who are writers. I don't know. I have no idea. 
I, I yes, just, you do. You just pointed and showed well, how there are very few people who are brilliant. Yes. So when someone you know, put it this way, you can call me a writer. I don't. I don't. I'm not into censorship. You can call me whatever you want. Knowing what I know, believe it or not, I've read almost all of those books in there. Yeah. Uh, especially. And I'm going to just because there are probably over 200 books. I'm going to say safely in this house. Oh, I don't know. That's. Maybe more than that. Maybe more than that. Um, in that one room. In especially one that library. left wall. That's a lot of literature. And I missed an entire wall because it's such a huge library. Yeah, but uh, I've read a good deal of them. I'm not, you know, which is, anyone can sit around and read a book. It's no big deal. But, uh, but But I'm, what I'm saying is I've read enough to know what real writing is, and I can tell you that I don't got it. It's like when someone says, you're a tough guy. You're like, no. Well, how do you know? Because I've been around really tough, real tough guys. And I'm so not one of those guys. So then how do you get the courage to write when knowing, you know, like I'll read these a beautiful work for, for someone, some of the people you've mentioned, like Camus. And how do you get the courage to then still write, even if you know you can't achieve what those people have achieved? You just have to be able to achieve yourself and, you know, achieve what you can do. And I'm in that weird position of I wish I could stop writing. Uh, I don't choose the words. The words choose me. It's why I stopped doing music. Music stopped playing me. At a certain point, I thought I had the tiger by the tail. The tiger's the music. You'll never have it by the tail. Once you think you do, the tiger's left. You're just punching at phantoms. Or you're like, yeah, I'm a good player. Like, the day you say that, just put the guitar down. At, you know, like, read interviews with guys like Eric Clapton. Yeah. Who can really play. I mean, some people don't like him. I don't have every record of his, but that dude can play a guitar. Right. Ask him if he's a good player. He'll be like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working at it. Flea, here's a contemporary figure. Flea, in the, some band called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They, they've sold like, I think, three or four records. Up and comers. Flea, yeah, you know, maybe they'll make it one day. That guy practices three instruments every day. Bass, trumpet, piano. Ask Flea if, if he's a good bass player. The truth is, he's one of the best musicians of our lifetime. Yeah. I mean, he's that good. He's crazy good. Ask him if he's a good bass player. He'll wear you out telling, telling you how much he sucks. So, okay, so what you're telling me is that you, you are a good writer, even though you don't feel that way, and part of not feeling that I'm, way I, is aspiring to be better. I'm trying to be a good writer. Yeah. Camus, those, those kind of people, that's the bar. Yes, it's, it's the it's the, I agree it's with the most painful okay. chin up you'll ever try and do. I can't get my chin up to that bar, and all those books I've written is <laughs> trying to get up to it. But I've never been able to place my chin on the bar and go put my book right next to "Of Time in the River" by Thomas Wolfe. That'll just never ever ever happen. But you can have a really good time trying. Right. In that, any monk who tells you I've reached illumination, like no, no, you're on the way to it, pal. That's the that's the it's the journey. It's the desire to be there. Yeah. Yeah, and and I wrote this in an LA Weekly article a few weeks ago, where I said I'm not interested in winning. I'm only interested in fighting. The win, I don't, the win's the boring part. I only I only care about the fight. Like by the time like my my new book, by the time it comes out before the chop. Yeah. By the time I get to it, like when we cracked the box, the first box that arrived here a few weeks ago, I do what I always do. I take the first one out that's in my hand and I sign it to my friend Ian Mackay. He gets the first of all my books that I touch. And we've been doing this for like 20 some years. I, and I grab it. I sign it to Ian. I thumb through it. I'm always able to find a typo. I can open the book and go, ah, and there you are. Any page. 
either the books are full of typos or I have this unbelievable ability. But I can usually go like, second pressing, that won't be there. And I put it in a jiffy pack and I send it to Ian. And then I'll pick up another one and kind of look it over for layout and make sure we got the gutters right and tell Heidi, hey, write Dave, our layout guy, and thank him for such a beautiful job. And I'll put it on the shelf and I'll never look at it again until somebody hands it to me to sign it. Or if there's some, someone will write me and go like, you know, the one signature, like one fold of pages is upside down and we'll, we'll pull about out a bunch, a ton of them look just to make sure there's no factory defect past that artistically. I'm on to the next three books. Like I've got three. But so I'm, like, just like go over your day for me, because that's where our even week, cause I'm, I'm guessing no day is the same, but like, I don't know how you logistically balance. It depends on the week. Um, basically I treat time as a fluid entity Sleep is what you get between tasks. And so uh, I, I pull myself off the mattress as early as I can. If I had a Which my is way, what time? Anywhere from between 4 to 8.30. I mean, if I had my way, I'd be up at 4 every day, really getting the day by the tail. I can't do it. My assistant, Heidi, that chick's up at 4. She's at the gym at 5. I mean, she's like unbelievable. I just, I don't have, I don't have the strength. Uh, anyway. What time does she go to bed? Nine or ten, but I'm just saying she just gets in the at morning. It. No, at night. But you know, I'm just saying she can get at it. I don't know how she does it. I, 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 I try. Anyway, on a perfect week, I get up really early. I get the workout done first. Just get that one done. Usually, the day starts with what Heidi says what the job is, because she's the air traffic controller. In that, she's the taskmaster. She's got the itinerary. And so I'll march into her office and she'll go, all right, um, just to be succinct. My work ethic was derived partially from my parents, but a lot of it was to get out of the house, train myself for the real world, which met me right in the grill, right at a, after I got out of high school. I tried, I went to American University, you know, AU. For a I, went, I went for a semester, yep. could not handle it. Just like couldn't handle the freedom. I needed a teacher to go sit down, read this. Not like, hey, come to class, don't come to class, it's your money. I needed someone chaining me to a desk. That's what I knew from sixth grade to graduation is uniform, time, demerits if you don't show up, and Saturday class if you screwed up. College is just like you're an adult. Do what you want. Not good for me. Uh, not with education. So interesting. But um, I think you've done so much without any, like, yeah. you have no structure. You've created all of this structure for yourself. Yes. But in, I wasn't, I just wasn't loving college. I just, I was done with school in that I, I had been to it all 12 grades and I was just really done with going to class. I wanted to roll the dice in the outside world. I was like, well, I'm enjoying my part-time job more than I'm enjoying hustling myself up New Mexico Avenue and going onto campus. So after that semester, I stopped. And after one mere semester, I was so buried in, in college loan. You know, man, oh, yeah. I had those guys calling me. It was brutal. And, you know, I, I, I got out of it. I paid off. But damn, man, four years of that, I'd be bailing myself out now. Anyway, be, to, be, to be short, I went into the full-time minimum wage working world, 40 to 60 hours at the Haagen-Dazs at Wisconsin right. and O, across from what is now a CVS back then, it was People's, it was a Haagen-Dazs, it's now the Avocado Cafe. 
I know that I, I, I visit the owner whenever I'm in DC. He's the nicest guy. And for years, a photo of me at Hagendaz was on his wall until someone came in off the street, hopped over the counter, stole it, and ran out. Oh my God. What a, what a drag. That was my, my first full time, full time. You know, there's not a whole lot you need to learn. Within 20 minutes, like you kind of, you know, scoop, right. cash in, cash out. So I met the boss and I watched, I, I met him before, I'd done a, a shift or two before I met him. So on a weekend, he would take the weekends off. I did like a Saturday, Sunday. And I met him finally. I said, hey, Steve, I'm Henry. How do you do, sir? You should let me be a shift manager. He said, and you are? I said, I'm not, I said, uh, okay, your most popular flavors are not warm enough to scoop. Uh, so in your prime time, your, your two popular flavors, vanilla and chocolate chocolate chip, are too hard. There's three freezers for Haagen-Dazs ice cream, or maybe ice cream in general, I don't know. The big box downstairs is like hard as granite. The second box warms it slowly, too hard to scoop. Then there's the third refrigerator called the soft box. Then there's the fourth from serving. You're warming up the ice cream over a period of days. If you warm it up too quickly, it gets icy and it's, it doesn't taste smooth. It's not smooth because you warmed it up too quickly. So you warm it over from the, from the freezer downstairs to the hard box, to the soft box, to the serving. And so I said, you need to rethink your inventory moving towards the weekend because your biggest flavors are not in the soft box. You need like three of those and three of those in your soft box. So your 14-year-old employees with no forearm strength don't have to hack away at your most popular flavor. For $1.30 to a scoop, you can't make people mad. You can't have a line out the door. You didn't masturbate? You didn't have any forearm strength? Uh, me, I had no problems with forearm strength. I'm talking about these ninth graders okay. he's got there. And they can't, you know. And so I said, you, you, you got to rethink your product. And he's like, check you out. He said, all right, wise guy. You work around here for six weeks and you don't screw up anything. You impress me and I'll think about making you a shift manager. I said, oh, okay. Because like, now I'm just going to kick your ass. Now I'm going to kick your ass with efficiency and cleaning. Now I'm going to blow your mind. And I'd show up there an hour early with my copper cleaner that I bought on my own money, redid all his pipes, uh, made a new detail. But that's amazing. Like, I just don't understand how you take instead of it's never self-destructive. Like you always take it and make it into a positive thing. The same thing with like the anger. Like You'll talk about how anger fuels you. Yeah. But you don't act out in an in an. No, my anger is not making me drink, go drink, rob people and kick dogs. My anger Say I'm angry at my government, which I am, you know, a, a, as a as an awake, aware person, I should be angry, even yes. for the people I vote for, about seven days a week. Yeah. That's probably healthy for all of us. We should all be angry a little or a lot all the time. It makes things better. But it's sort of like, I'm just even thinking when we were kids, like, I grew up in your culture, a culture that you helped create. And I grew up and, and fell apart in that culture as well. Like I would go to these ska shows and I would hang out with these kids who, you know, would listen to your music and listen to Ian Mackay. And I would go to all these things. And it was a culture that, that you were instrumental in helping to create. And for you, I see it as this like incredible positive where you've used the anger that was there as a boy who was abused or a boy who was angry at the world, those kinds of things and like put it to good. But, like, I fell apart under that anger. I mean, I got, like, assaulted by a skinhead. Like, I felt like the anger that other guys in that world and women had didn't necessarily go towards constructive means. And then you see in the work world where, like, in, you know, someone else could say, you're not going to make me a shift manager right away. And then they go and, like, graffiti the place. I guess what huh. I'm saying is, like. I, I've never, yeah, I, I never would have thought to have, you know, you know, 
vandalized a place that wasn't giving me what I wanted. Does that make sense? Like you, you, you feel the anger, but it doesn't like lead to negative. But all the people that I was around at those shows, like that skinhead, who the way he dealt with his anger is by taking it out on. But I will say this: women like myself. We're not here yet. But you know what? You were in that scene when that scene was really negative. The DC scene, we're talking like, what, 80s? Yeah. Yeah, by 86, that was a scene where I was afraid to go to shows. One time, Black Fly broke up in summer 86, so I went, I, I licked my wounds in DC. I repaired back to DC, and I was kicking it with Ian for about a week, just kind of walking it off, preparing the Rollins band, are, are already in plans yeah. for the next thing. And, and, and literally, like eight weeks later, I was in a studio making my first solo record. I mean, I, Which was, I was amazing, a, by the way. Thank you. But like, you know, like right, right, right back at it. I mean, you gotta, you gotta eat it before it congeals. You gotta go. <laughs> anyway. That's uh, what I'm talking about. You don't get sucked into the, the this, negative. Uh, like there were people who would die in a mosh pit. And it's right. like, why, what's music is that good that you're yeah. going to like. Or that bad. Step but, over but, but, but when I was well, there, those, those days in the mid eighties, like you go down a DuPont circle and you're like, Whoa. Like, you, that whole park was nothing but white power youth. You're like, man, this scene sucks. And, you know, I missed a lot of it because I was out here. But Ian would tell me these tales of, like, the later Minor Threat shows, the early Fugazi shows. Yep. It's just like, I'm not going out at all. And so that scene, the scene you were in. I was late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, well, you know, it got really bad before it got better. Now it's great. Like, you, those people don't even bother showing up because they just got, you know, a lot of those people either died off, got jailed, yeah. became cops or Marines. But mainly they just kind of got complacent, got into their alcoholism and faded into deep into the suburbs, like into parts of Virginia that, you know, you'll never even see. They, yeah. they, they, they just kind of, you know, fell apart. Anyway. Um, I ran away from that world anyways, but I mean... Yeah, but, was the, but I'm saying the one you were in, that slice of DC that you got was a real rough one. But for me, I, my life, like many, like many people's lives, has been fraught with adversity. And I realized that another thing I put together in the, in the mid-80s, in 84, I was 23. In the summer of 84, you know, we were living on the road playing like eight nights a week. And that tour was merciless. Anyway... It hit me. I watched all my very talented friends, like the Minutemen, all these great bands. Yes. You know, all so these good. meat puppets, all these bands. You're like, who's to do? All these <laughs> insanely talented people I'm surrounded by, realizing I have not a breadcrumb of that talent. And I'm watching them come home from tours and go back to their waiter jobs. I'm like, okay, they're the ones who actually have the talent. So if they're working a second job, if rock and roll isn't paying the bills, then what... I better come up with plans B, C, D, E, F, and G at least. And that's in, it was in that summer I started like quadrupling down on the writing. I had just started doing talking shows and they were drawing very well. Was that already paying you more? Was spoken word already paying you more for, than music right away? Well, music, Black Flag, you got a per diem. We would get from $5 to $7.50 a day. In 1986, our pay was 150 bucks a week. And... So I say, you guys are rock stars. I was like, really? Let, let's see how much I'm making this year. And you call that rock star. But, you know, you go ahead and live in your little world. So 150 bucks a week. Was it split evenly? Nope. It was just what you got. A lot of the money went to a certain band member's uh, proclivities for enjoyment. But we got 150 bucks a week. Anyway, 
And so you make that money, you find all kinds of ways to make that go far. And you get really innovative. Like you don't eat at restaurants, go to grocery stores, you know, buy the loaf of bread, put it in your backpack, keep buying avocados as you travel. I mean, just like make it work, right. you know, figure it out. You know, it's day old bread is cheap. I'll eat. You just get used to eating food that you're like, okay, I hope this is going to stay in me. <laughs> anyway, you just make do. It's fine. You're young. You can, you know, but anyway, in that summer, I really started working hard on the writing. I already had the publishing company. I already made a couple of dopey little books. I was already doing the talking shows. Which and I'm the only guy on stage, so I'm getting like 175 bucks. I'm getting like 80 whole dollars, which in those days is like eight thousand dollars. You're like, damn, man, that's some money. I'm drawing at least 28 people a night. My my goal is to one day draw 100 people. Anyway, now what would your goal be? Oh, I don't have. I don't. Well, these days I have a totally different mindset. I don't think about numbers of people. I just think about doing good shows. Um, I'm afforded the fact that the place will do fine anyway, ticket wise. And I'm not bragging. It's, it's, I'm damn lucky. I only, I just, you know, and now that allows me to take my hands off that wheel and put my hands on the, do the best show every night wheel, which I prefer anyway. Uh, so I, I tried to get better at the writing. I started really, you know, like any time off, like in 885, we came back from, uh, uh, 90, like 93 shows in 104 days came back from that five days later i'm in i'm renting a black flag van from black flag inc turning right around and going back across america on a spoken word tour drawing between 10 to 30 people 50 people a night sleeping in the van with our sound man he was you know driving and doing sound we went right back out for another lap of failure and so, you know, you come back with like, you know, after a month and a half, you come back with like 1100 bucks, which is nothing for that much work. You know, you're not making much money, no. but, but you're getting your chops and you're putting your name out there and you're, you know, breaking your bones, but you're young. You can take it. Point I'm making is I realized that guys like me are going to have to be able to cook, sing, golf, park cars. Uh, fix a, little, a few of those, be able to do a little bit of that and a little bit of this banjo, flute, and piano, because no one's going to hire me to do any one thing. It's going to be, I can do any of it, or I have to have the brazen guts to show up for all of it. And so in 86, Black Flag breaks up, and all of a sudden I'm free. I'm like free to fail, and like there it is, the iron lung is gone because Black Flag was very full-time. And all of a sudden, it's all up to me. It's like, you know, the first day out of the house when your mom goes, you're an adult, goodbye. Right. And you're like, wow, it's all mine. The world's my oyster to screw up. So I said, okay, better get a new band going. Better really wail on the publishing company. Better start booking more talking shows. Then, you know, had success with the band. The talking shows take off. The books start selling really well. Uh, here comes the voiceover guys. Hey, you want to do a voiceover for the yeah, gap? That's like, awesome. yeah, they came to you. Uh-huh. Yeah. I didn't have the forethought to go get an agent. I'm, you know, I'm just like, yeah, I'll try anything, man. And so I'll do the voiceover audition and I'll park your car. I mean, I'll, I'll try anything. And then did the agents come after that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I started getting a little bit of voiceover work. And then Hollywood director types started calling like, hey, man, I saw you in college. You're, you're crazy. Can you act? I'm like, yeah. Can you pay? Because I can't act. And I don't have a car. So I'm taking public buses to these auditions. I'm power walking from like Silver Lake to wherever to get to an audition. And I'm in there all sweated out like, okay, so <laughs> I'm just winging it. 
and I'm getting little parts in this or that. The voiceovers are coming. The band starts doing very well. You know, we start, you know, the band was good and people started showing up. And, you know, I'm like, wow, we're on to something. I'm not bragging, but, you know, you, you're like, wow, this, we don't suck. Hurrah. And people were saying, hey, you don't suck. And we found out that Europeans liked us, that we can do a month in Germany. I was going to ask about that because even like your books are translated into Czech and Russian and Korean and Chinese. All stuff. Yeah. Are you sure that they're, they're translating what you wrote? You have to be very careful. And you, you basically have two translators, ones who translates it one way and then back again to English just to make sure. You roll the dice and you have to be very careful. Wait, logistically, you didn't explain to me like how you handle having all these different jobs and touring. Oh, and you, like you just, that time is fluid. You have to be very adaptable and you just get used to, like yes, last week I was in two TV shows. One just wrapped after 55 days, we just wrapped a thing for History Channel. Of course, my contract says I can't tell you what it is, but it's historically, historically oriented content and it's going to be really good but start oh, to finish exciting. on and off we shot for four weeks in dc we had access we it's the show is so cool our producer is so great he's such, such a genius anyway the only weak link in the whole chain was me the rest of it is awesome anyway after 56 days on and off we wrapped out two days ago that just wrapped just did a pilot so in one week actually i went from voiceover for infinity Okay. To, to the Fox lot to shoot scenes for the pilot back here. And then two days later, on shoot day for History Channel in, in Cal Southern California. So your week is infinity, inspired performance, to and action, to, okay, Henry, we're miking up this guy, you're going to interview this author. So then when are you going to find time to write your column for LA Weekly and then like also for the KCRW usually show? That's, usually that's Friday night. Is usually quiet because I don't have any dates. Uh, no one's you coming over You don't date anyone? No, I'm a solitary guy. I'm a workaholic. I'm a work slut. But it means you don't even date at all? No, I just work. I'm not good at it. I'm missing the chip, as Heidi says. But don't, don't you miss that element? Yeah. But you, you need to have the human element to be able to say, so now that we're done with all that, now let's have a conversation. Um, I just think of like, deadline. And, and, and so rather than being a crappy adult with other adults, I'll just get, I'll just hand in my thing a day before deadline. So Friday nights, I am obligated to no one. Saturdays, I don't owe anyone anything. I can howl all night. So I usually go to a Starbucks, my big Friday night out, because there's movement, ample coffee and lights. And I like activity around me. Yeah. Plug in the earplugs, usually physical graffiti. Put that on. I just, I don't know. That record and me, we just start, it starts cooking. It's so cool. Yeah, me and Zeppelin, we get it done. <laughs> I listen to that band every damn day since I was like 12. Anyway, you know, I got something going through the headphones, a big tall coffee. And the first draft gets written by hand very, very quickly. Then on Sunday night or Sunday afternoon, I'll type it out. That's draft two. Monday, I read it out loud one more time. Sometimes I read it to Heidi, who's a very good editor. She'll just go like, boring, you, I fix think it. you have the greatest partner in crime. No, no, she, she's like the smartest human. And the reason, one of the reasons I, I get it all done, Heidi, I can go out and do it. She's the one setting it all up to make sure we don't, no wires get crossed. Like she's, she's been, we've been working together. So I won't say she works for me. I pay her a salary, 
but we worked together. Yeah. 16 years. And, and I, whenever I default, whenever I'm smart enough to listen to her, it, it's always the good idea. Always the good idea. I've never been right. When we, when we have a who's right, who's wrong, she's always right. Like, always right. Anyway. So Sunday is the second draft. Yeah. And then, then, and then Monday I'll shake it down one more time. Sometimes read it out loud to Heidi to see if, she, if the jokes translate or, you know, the humor. And then I send it in. Tuesday's hand-in day. I always try and uh, overachieve and hand it in a day before. But I how asked are my you? editor. I said, Do you, does it impress you that I hand it in early? He said, no. I'm like, damn. So I'm trying <laughs> to kick your ass with it. You're like, we don't care. I'm like, I don't So um, that's how are you do that. doing that and then shooting a pilot? You just get it all done. You just realize that you can. And that's the thing. That's the bitch of the thing. And it really is that you can do it. You're like a machine. Are you able to enjoy the the joy, like, you know, getting a Grammy and that kind of stuff? No, that I get joy, but not in the places you're describing. I scramble for a living. You know, I, I've said no to work. There's things I've said no to where you just, you gotta be able to look yourself in the mirror the, you know, the next day. And I have a hard enough time doing that anyway. So you- Is that true? Yeah, you know, you, you gotta be. I've learned as an older guy, you've gotta just be very, very careful, because everything you do stays done. Like any slight, like every once in a while, like you know, some guy wrote me the other day. He said, "Henry, I really like you. I'm a conservative, so I'm one of those gun guys. Shoot me if you don't like it." <laughs> You're like, but I don't have a gun. And, and I, I wrote him back, and I quote, you know, I, I, I said, "No one's trying to take your gun, you dumb fuck," especially me. Have a nice day. He he came at me friendly. I'm a fan of yours. We did, you made a joke. I, I like guns, so shoot me. Ha ha. And I went back at him with like hammer and tongs. It's not the end of the world, but I probably lost that guy. He didn't deserve that. I'm a 52-year-old man. I should learn to grow up. So there's moments like that where you send off that email and you're like, too late to take that back. And it's... It's those kind of things you're like, okay, I want maybe 10% less of those moments in my life as I go hurtling towards Forest Lawn, uh, the cemetery. And so I've learned that the decisions I make, they stay made. You wear them for the rest of your life. Every insult, which is, again, isn't the end of the world, but any slight real or perceived, you got to live with it. So you, it, it becomes a stain on your carpet. And so you got to live, if you're going to live with all of that, because you can't wash it out or deny it, you can only apologize. That kind of doesn't really get it out. The person stays insulted. Trust me, <laughs> they stay insulted. So what about the joy? Are you able to the joy I get, hope to be able to enjoy it later? I or? don't do joy. You don't do I do relief. Okay. Yeah, this, like Friday nights, I pulled off the week. I don't have to, you know, I, I, you know, I get the LA Weekly thing done. That Damoclean sword is, you know, momentarily not dangling over my head by the proverbial single horsehair. I can, I, I can exhale. I live for that exhale. Like, ah. One of the most, the bestest positions I've got is one cheek on either side of this couch listening to that. Uh, it's a simple pleasure. Listening to your stereo. Just listening to some music with a caffeinated liquid, hot or cold, in my hand <laughs> and a notepad to catch any stray idea that might come down through the, you know, the chute. 
and that's it. No chicks, no Ferraris, nothing being chopped and snorted. Just a ma- an old man playing some ancient record through a nice stereo system with a very strong cup of something caffeinated. And it don't cost much. It's not that fancy. And I do this alone. And that to me is like, that is the most perfect state. Me, some, you know, like a, a, lo- a loaf of bread, a jug of wine and thou. Don't need the thou. Don't need the, I'll take the bread. <laughs> don't need the wine. But simple. And I found in my life since I was like five years old to now, the best thing is in a room alone listening to music. I'm not saying I hate being on stage. I'm addicted to it. If only I could stop doing shows. If only I could stop writing. I mean, ugh, I can't stop I it. And so the, all that is nice. But joy, I don't know, you put a record on, you're like, oh, man, is that good. I guess that's joy. But I, I, I get moments of satisfaction. I've trained myself to become an enemy of satisfaction. On stage, I, I'm on stage for about an average, like say I do a show tonight in a theater, it's just my show. There's no one on stage opening. I'm on stage about two hours and 40 minutes. Speed of light, no notes, no nothing. It just comes right out of the front of the brain pan. Like, you know, just something going very fast. I come off stage completely exhausted. There's like two minutes of afterglow where you sit somewhere like, I did it, I did it. I put the stone over the mountain and push it over the other side. Yes. And then after about 120 seconds, you're like, and tomorrow night I'm in Buffalo (laughs) and I'm pushing the stone up. And I have this deja vu kind of in joke with my road manager who has been circling the globe with me for years. I shower if they have one, drink a Gatorade or some replenishing drink, pack up my gear. My road manager takes it from me. I put on my laminate, my Sharpies. And he, I said, are there anybody, is there anybody out there? And he goes, oh yeah, mate. He's Australian. And half the venue's out by the bus. And I go out there and I listen to every story, get every breast ground into my side, <laughs> get every But you ass, get breasts grounded into your side? Butthooks groped. My husband will take the photo of us. Grope. I'm like, okay. Oh, yeah. Phone number stuffed into my pockets. Every bit of bad breath as the story needs to be told. <laughs> um, the drunken guy who tells me the story the second and third time, the drunk Marine. I disagree with everything you said. I know because you told me throughout the show, sir. Thanks a lot for that. Um, I listen to every story, shake every hand, and it sounds like I'm, I'm complaining. I'm not. I have an unconditional, unbridled affection for these people. They showed up. Right. I, without them, nothing else in my life happens. I, I love these people. They have no idea. They have no idea how much I like them. I can't even put it into words because without them, I got nothing going on. I'm not saying no, no stereo. I'm saying like no reason. You know, right. and they really give me a purpose. I love these people. And so I meet them all and I listen to every story. And some of these stories would peel the pain off your car. You know, I'm gay. I came out to my conservative parents after I put on one of your records. I yelled the lyrics to the top of my lungs and I came out to my parents in the living room. And here I am, man. Or, you know, I'm the big guy who can't lose weight. I've wanted to kill myself since I was 15. Your records keep me hanging on. I write you three times a year. You always write me back. It means so much to me, man. Thank you so much. I'm like, it's cool, man. No killing yourself, right? You're like, okay. 
Henry, I'm a cutter. Okay, let's talk. Like you can't, you, you're, you can't, don't do that to yourself anymore. Let's get you into the gym. Let's like, like the, here's five records you should listen to instead of doing that. And so uh, my husband came home and uh, hanged himself in the garage after Iraq. I'm so sorry. Um, I did five rotations through Iraq and Afghanistan. You came out to visit me in, in Baghdad in 06. Thank you. You're welcome. I get all of it. It's unbelievable. You know, my brother was killed in Afghanistan two months ago. Here's the rubber wristband to remember him by. The girl walks over to him. I lost my brother three weeks ago in Afghanistan. They have a moment of crying. We all watch. Then I, you know, meet them both and they go on their way. I mean, it is, you get such respect for other humans. Yes. Because everyone, including the ones you disagree with from top to bottom, who you just told in an email to basically go fuck themselves, they all are, they all deserve respect. They all got a story. They're all, they all got some pain. They all had a moment where they had that human moment. Of, I didn't get the girl. I didn't get the guy. She said, no, I got divorced. I'm getting divorced. My life is turning to shit. I'm, I'm scared. I got no job. I'm freaking out right now. Everyone has, sadly, one or five of those. And the Abraham Lincoln in me tells me I got to give those people a moment in that a moment of non-judgment, a moment of listening, and if you're not going to be a listener, if, you, if you're going to do the show where all you did was talk at them at a high rate of speed for two hours and a half and charge them 30 bucks to sit and take that shellacking, if you don't have four minutes to listen to what they have to say, screw you, then you don't really mean it. And if you don't want to get recognized on the street and do cell phone photos that take way too long as you have bad man breath and have your guy's sweaty form around your shoulder at LAX, then don't have a press agent. Don't be in the TV show. Don't do the interview. Don't put your face on a book because that comes with it. Right. And so I learned that over the years. Like if you're going to put it out there, then you got to be ready. You stick your hand out there. Don't freak out when someone shakes it. Yes. And the, and, and so all of that rules, you ask, you know, how do you get, how do you do your time? My schedule is shaped by what I've said yes to, how Heidi coordinates it, and what my wild, am, well, not really my ambition, I don't have much ambition, is more resolve and like I'm going to do something and I'm, I'm going to finish it and then I'm going to do the next thing. I'm not trying to get to the top of anything. Interesting. Because I'm only trying to summit myself. I'm not in competition with anyone. Who am I in competition with? The other guy on stage next to me? It's just me up there. What writer am I competing with? My name's the only name on that book cover. Right. It's just me challenging myself. It's the, uh, you know, the no hands clapping, you know, tree in the forest where I don't, I have to, I had to, have to train myself for not giving a damn if no one hears it fall because quite often no one does hear it. You do, an, you do an in-store, eight people show up. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not <laughs> Too bad it was New York City. Oops. Uh, I guess you didn't get the flyer. I mean, like you find out. I know, I know. Yeah. Henry, I'm so grateful that you like spent the time talking with me. I have to say that you're like an utter, you know that you're totally crazy. That you're like such. Yeah, I know a, I'm nuts. I mean, but in the most wonderful, beautiful way possible. There, there's some, there's some not so wonderful ways, not illegal or harmful, but just kind of, you're, 
you know, Mike up Heidi, she'll tell you all about it. All right, well, oh, I've my God, <laughs> where's the empathy? <laughs> that is an issue, but I, I don't get to see that. I only get to see the beauty of it. So thank you You're so, so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank Joel Arnold. I want to thank all of you for listening. and want to ask that if you can, definitely donate. You can donate at employeeofthemonthshow.com. Again, that's employeeofthemonthshow.com. Donate 20 bucks. That's lunch. That is one lunch for the day. Um, it can even be two lunches for the day, actually, if you get Thai food. In fact, that could be lunch and dinner. I mean, you don't need to eat two lunches in the day. So you could get, like, two Thai food lunch specials and then have one for dinner. And look what you've done. You've fed, you've fed a talk show host for the day. Definitely do it. Definitely check out more episodes. Subscribe on iTunes. And much more importantly, try to enjoy your job. And if you don't enjoy it, try to figure out what it is that you want to be doing with your life because this is all the time you've got. This is all the time we've got Uh, until the next episode.